Hello, this is Paul F. Tompkins, the famous comedian. You seem to have found yourself at showbizmonkeys.com. Sorry to blow your mind. Hi. Okay, now it's working. Sorry about that. No worries. So, uh, the Amber Ruffin show, I think, got greenlit in September. And uh, we all know uh, what happened around February, March. I'm just wondering, (laughs) how did your concept for the show have to change? You know, the actual core of the show didn't change at all. We just had to think about how it was going to feel without an audience. Um, and I think that's one of the things you don't know until you get in the studio. But luckily, Amber has a ton of energy and a ton of charisma. And she can fill an empty room. And I think it really helps that she has her sidekick, Tarek, who happens to in real life be an old friend of hers. So I think it helps a lot. I think Tarek provides a lot of the warmth and energy that um, a studio audience would normally provide. And um, and I think we just took the original concept and kind of just put it in an empty studio with Amber and Tarek. And we thought, let's see how it goes. I mean, yeah, you can definitely feel the uh, chemistry right away. Mm-hmm. Is there any ways that you want to change the show as soon as things are back to normal? I think the only way we'd want to change it is just to add an audience, because, boy, is that fun. We miss, yeah. we miss having one. But, yeah, I think that's it. Is there anything, because, again, it's, a, it's political, but it's political in such a way that's a little bit evergreen for the most part. Was that a conscious choice because it's on a streaming network now? I'm not quite sure what you call it. Um, no, it's not a conscious choice. I think we just really are, I think we're all just reacting in real time, honestly, to the news. And I think if it feels evergreen, then it's just unfortunately because things like racism or, you know, a lack of access to good health care in America tend to be ongoing issues. I I wish it wasn't evergreen. I wish we could talk about about, um, racial inequality or America's bad response to COVID one week and then have those things be resolved the next week. But unfortunately, that's not, those aren't the times we're living in. So you and Amber are still writing for Seth, uh, mm-hmm. during the week. And so I, uh, wonder first off, uh, what are the two different mission statements you have in your head going in? Like what, what is a Seth fit versus what is something you want to do for Amber? That's a great question. I think it just comes from knowing them both personally. You can just kind of feel, like I, I wrote monologue jokes for both of them today, and I can just kind of feel when I'm writing a joke, like, oh, this feels more like I can hear it in Seth's voice, or this feels like an area that interests Seth versus, like, this feels, you know, like, um, Seth is uh, very political and really interested in the nitty-gritty of politics, and Amber um, is also interested in politics and very smart, but also has, like, a very silly side. So you can just kind of feel when you write a joke where the right home is for it. Or sometimes you write a joke and they decide that the home for it is the garbage, and that's okay, too. Kind of on the same track, because you're kind of working for both at once, what are, like, with the ground rules of personal boundaries set up of, like, make sure you're not writing a joke for this person during this time, or, you know, when is Amber your coworker versus your boss? When is that your boss versus a producer? And how do those roles kind of change your relationship? Oh. Well, Amber and I are both executive producers of the Amber Ruffin Show, so we're co-workers on both, which is nice. Like, we're just kind of a team, and we're just vacillating between are we working on her show or are we working on Seth's show. Um, but as far as work boundaries go, I think in the pandemic there are no work boundaries. 
I think we're just all working at home and living at home and making dinner at home and socializing on Zoom at home, and it's all one big sloppy mess. We're educating our kids at home. You know, I think we're doing laundry while we're taking a work meeting. It's all one big squishy jumbled up mess. Right. I've, I've been trying to write packets during all of this, so I have to do deep dives on the news, and I just wonder if you have any advice on, like, how do you turn something so depressing into a joke? Yeah, there, man, like, that, is, um, that is the challenge for this time. I think the key to that is just always checking in with your own gut response to the headline and writing from that place, because what's going on isn't funny, but you can talk about what your own human response is to what's going on. Has it been harder as time has moved on to write political Trump jokes? Not even so much that it hurt, but just in the fact that, like, it's really hard to find a grounded premise. Like, you're starting from such an unrelatable place. I think what's hard is that, what's hard about writing for Trump is that so much of comedy relies on heightening as a, as a tool. And it's really hard. Trump is so ridiculous and he's such a bad guy that it's really hard to heighten him Mm -hmm. um, because he's already so nuts. So I think that definitely makes the job harder. I have a weird deep dive of something that I found, and I don't know if it's true. So um, did you also write for the Muppet Holiday Special with Lady Gaga? I did. That is a deep cut. I did, in fact. I have... I'm going to try to not make this all Muppet-related questions, but, like, were you just doing punch-up for that, or do they did they send you specific ground rules of a Muppet can or can't do this, or things you should have in mind when writing for a Muppet? No, we just we just pitched um we just pitched ideas for sketches. Okay. And then just whatever worked, they used, and whatever didn't, they didn't. All right. I was I I did never I never did actually get to come into direct contact with a Muppet. I'm I'm so sorry for you on that. Thank front. you. I'm sorry for myself also. Thank you. <laughs> um, something else I wondered is uh, you started at the Second City in Detroit, right? I started in Chicago, and then I also went to Detroit, and then to Second City, Denver. Yeah, I did a whole tour of the Second City system. Yeah. Um, because I did the I.O. in Chicago, and then went back to Second City, Toronto. So I oh wow the Chicago main stage. And and just watching the difference between the two was huge in my mind. Is there a big difference between Chicago and Detroit or Chicago and Denver? Oh, for sure. I think anytime you go to a new city, there's just going to be slight variations on what. Um, I think it, I mean there's going to be variations in people's approach to comedy. But there's also going to be variations in what people are talking about. Um, I mean, I think now we live in a time when, like, Trump's every move dominates the conversation for so many Americans and the pandemic and all the developments in the pandemic dominate conversation. But back when I was working in Second City, um, it was calmer times. And so I think people were much more able to, people had much more bandwidth for the political and social issues that were affecting their area of the country. So it was actually really, because it was within a year and a half that I did Second City Chicago, Second City Detroit, and then Second City, Denver, maybe within like a two-year period. So it was really interesting to me to see like what different issues were affecting and what, you know, occupied people's interests and minds and imaginations in each city. Well, I guess like writing for the the two shows now, do you thank God anytime there's something you can do that isn't political? Or do you think that 
there's just no way to not make something political at this point. Or Oh, no, it's a huge relief, I think, whenever there's like something to talk about that you can take your mind off all this for a minute. For sure. Right. I think everybody feels that way. I feel like people feel that way when they come across a new story that's just not about America's impending doom. The other thing I was going to ask is uh, when Second City puts together a cast, I find that they they almost think of it in terms of like putting together a bank heist movie. Like you need a safe cracker, you need an acrobat, you need a charming salsa dancer. Did they ever have a conversation with you on what they thought you were in the cast? Or do you have an idea of what you thought you were and what was your linchpin? That's a really interesting question. I like the bank heist analogy because it makes um, Second City comedians sound way cooler than any of us ever were. Um, but no, no, nobody ever talked to anybody, to my knowledge, about like, hey, this is your role. I think our job there was the same as my job now at Late Night, which is just to come in every day ready to talk in a comedic way about the things that are on your mind. Great. So thank you so much for doing this. I absolutely love the show. Uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, hey, I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time and have a great day. 